Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. One of, the big idea, <clears throat> one of the big ideas in chemistry today is chromatography, a way of separating mixed-up substances to analyse them or extract something useful. In its basic form, it's familiar to generations of schoolchildren, from when they put a spot of ink at the bottom of a strip of paper, dip it into water, and then watch the pigments spread upwards, revealing their separate colours, sometimes, if you're lucky, like feathers on a bird of paradise. With progressive discoveries over 200 years, some fine-tuning and an occasional Nobel Prize, chemists can now sift out the different molecules in just about any substance. It's a process that had an essential role in many parts of modern life, the cleaning of drinking water, in forensic science and in medical tests and in making pharmaceuticals. With me to discuss chromatography are Andrea Suller, Professor of Chemistry at University College London, April Stolker, Professor of Chemical Sciences at Dublin City University, and Leon Barron, Senior Lecturer in Forensic Science at King's College London. Andrea Seller, we've mentioned paper and ink. What's going on there? And can you is this can you give us that example of chromatography? Well, this is this is one of those those wonderful little experiments or demonstrations, if you will, that that everyone should do with their children. I mean, you know, if you've never done this before, then what you really have to do is to get either some kitchen paper or some blotting paper. I must say that, uh, and just to explain to the listeners, Andrew has decided to turn this studio into a mini laboratory, so he's all over the table, which is not very big anyway. Uh, I'll talk while you're cutting the papers into strips or whatever you're doing. We've got stuff, and he's going to tell us how. You're going to tell us what's going on, aren't you? So, absolutely. So what I've done is I've, as I've cut a little piece of blotting paper, I'm going to take some water, and I'm going to pour it into a beaker. And then what I'll do is take the blotting paper and put one spot of ink about a centimeter from the bottom. And the ink that I'm using is actually a water-soluble ink, so I'm using a, a magic marker. And now I dip the, um, the paper into the water at the I'm bottom. just reassuring listeners that this, in fact, is happening. Yes. And, and, and by capillary action, of course, the water rises up the paper. And what it's really doing is it's setting up a kind of race between the molecules that make up the, the colors within the magic marker spot, within the ink itself. And so they all start together at the bottom of the paper. And as the water reaches them, what it starts to do is to help them travel up the paper. So they're carried upwards. Now, the paper is something that we call the stationary phase because it doesn't move. And on the other hand, the water, which is the moving part, we call the mobile phase. And along the way, the different colors will move up the paper, and and they move really to the extent to which they stick to the paper or less. So it's really looking at the, let's call it the stickiness of the ink itself, right, with respect to the paper. And what this will do is it will ultimately separate things out and allow us to analyze what this ink is made of. Has anything happened in your job? Well, we're only at the beginning. The, the, the capillary action is quite small. But, of course, as one always says on Blue Peter, here's one I made earlier. So here is a spot that we, uh, that we put a few minutes ago. It was using brown ink, and it's separated out into a beautiful sort of bright blue. There's some pink, and there's some orange as well. And what you tend to find is that it brings out the inner child in just about anyone. 
Right, well, my inner child has not... Yes, fine, I'll leave it at that. OK, fine, so we know what's going on. Uh, uh, the technique has remained remarkably similar since it was it evolved from that uh, simple uh, premise, although the substances, the way it's being addressed by different materials, has grown more complicated. Well, the technique actually originated um, really about 150 years ago, and in a sense by accident, with a German chemist called... No, I didn't ask that. What, uh, I, I wanna go, uh, what do these techniques have in common, the different well, techniques? Well, the, 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 the thing that, that, that they have in common is really the fact that you're starting everyone off together and that they travel through a medium at different speeds. And it turns out that there's a plethora of ways in which you can get different molecules to, in a sense, probe their stickiness against different stationary phases. And so one can use paper, one can use all kinds of sort of solid materials like, like silica, like alumina, like chalk. And on the other hand, you can also use all kinds of polymers and resins which have charges on them. And what that allows you to do is to see whether the molecules stick through a purely electrostatic. In other words, there's, there's a charge on the molecule and a charge on the stationary phase. That might allow them to stick. In other cases, it might be more subtle um, forces which actually hold them. But okay, the key point is that some go faster, some go slower. Right. April Stolkov, can you explain a, a, a bit more uh, detail what's happening in chromatography at a molecular level? So we've had this experiment, as we've seen, didn't work. It's probably working slowly. We'll see it at the end of the program, perhaps. Uh, and what's happening in the molecular level, and, and why is that important? Well, I, the way I kind of think about it, my first academic position was at the University of Hawaii, and I happened to be stuck in traffic out in front of the international marketplace one day and noticed a busload of tourists being dumped out at the front of the marketplace. And if I wanted to characterize that group of people, how many little boys are in that group, how many senior citizens are in that group, it's real hard to tell that when they're all clumped together. But if I, if I imagine myself going around to the back of the international marketplace after the people have percolated through that marketplace, they've had different affinities for different sites. The athletes might have been more attracted to the... Um, the sports paraphernalia stores, the senior citizens might have been more attracted to the things selling touristy kinds of things they could bring home to their grandchildren. But the fact of the matter is, is that they all would come out in different clusters that were separated, and then it's much easier to characterize the... And, and that's essentially what's going on at a molecular level. You have things that are more attracted to different um, materials, like the paper, for instance, in, in the example that Andrea just gave. Um, and, and as chemists, we have to understand that on a molecular level and try to exploit it and maximize certain interactions if we want particular separations versus others. Given the simplicity of the experiment, why did it take so long to get around to it? Well, originally, Svet was the one who, who, who first did a lot of this kind of stuff, and there were two things that happened. This was in 19, early 1900s when he first um, started talking about this. Some of his early papers were published in Russian, and they weren't accessible to the general population. Some other colleagues or other scientists in the field used materials that were a lot more aggressive in retaining compounds, and so other people couldn't reproduce it. Um, and, and so for those reasons, uh, that that's a lot of why it, it didn't get adopted widely. Can you um, tell us how important the choice of the mobile phase, the water in this case, in, in Andrew's case, he, we put this uh, piece of paper in water? 
It's it's critically important. There has to be um, it's it's a balancing between the interactions that the the substances in the sample that you're trying to analyze. They have some affinity for both phases. It's just which one dominates. So um, in the stationary phase and the mobile phase, it's a combination. Two. You can't do and it. And molecules in- are more attracted to one or the other. Yes. So they stick or they move on. Yes. And that gives you different definitions yes. and of those definitions you can work out the, 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 the compound in its individual parts Yeah. so that's what's going on yeah isn't that wonderful t- isn't that a wonderful technique it is it's great yeah. so uh, where do you go from there um, you have to detect it at the end now with, with Svet's case and, and in the example given here you use colors but um, a what lot do you mean you use colors the, you can see the, the colors yeah. On the on the on the paper when when they're separated out, but a lot of the stuff that we're working with now in chromatography, we're working at very very small levels, uh, low low concentrations, and we're also working with substances that don't have color. So you have to be separating them is one thing, but you also have to be able to detect them. Okay, Leon Barron, we've got a good idea about how it works now. It, it isn't all that complicated, uh, it, but it gets more sophisticated as time goes on because the, the stationary thing can be gas, can be liquid, not just a piece of solid paper. And the mobile thing can not only need be water, but there are all sorts of other... So, so that's the deal. Right. Before we go any further, because it's interesting to get into in detail, but it would be useful, I think, for our listeners to know, although it began as blue sky thinking uh, in the great tradition of the Royal Society of Curiosity it's ended up as a great commercial engine Uh, where is it working in the practical and commercial world? Okay, I think we could speak for hours about that it's a very very exciting topic but we won't Um, I think I'll start off by saying that almost everybody has had uh, chromatography affect their lives, I would imagine. So here in front of me, I've got a bottle of drinking water. Um, If you look at the label on these drinking water bottles, you generally see a list of compounds in there. I've got things like calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium and so on. Um, Chromatography was used to find out what was in that drinking water. It's a spring water source and it also is able to find out how much is there. So there's a delicate balance in drinking water, for example, to uh, to find out what's in it and is it fit for human consumption. Um, the, the techniques that mm-hmm. were described at the, in, in the initial simplistic, simple stage mm-hmm. by Andrea are working there yes, to get that exactly. bottle of pure the, water. What was used here was ion exchange chromatography. And so it exploits a charge on either a metal or its uh, counter ion here to, uh, to separate out the molecules from each other and find out how much is there. And what does it do in forensic science? It's a it's a very, very active component of most forensic laboratories. It's almost a gold standard in chemical analysis laboratories. Um, traditionally, uh, people would use it for forensic toxicology, so the study of poisons. Um, generally, taking a blood sample from, from somebody is a very, very complex mixture and to find out which of the some 2,000 pharmaceutical compounds or illicit drugs might be there can you do it? They can do it in that detail. Yes, you can. Um, also, um, it's very, very useful for uh, detecting explosives and arson. In what way? Uh, so, again, if you go to a, a scene, it might be a post-blast scene. Uh, you might take a sample from that scene. Very complex. A sample of what? It might be soil. It yeah. might be a residue on a surface to find out what the explosive might have been. Um, and we were able to separate out all the components and screen it. And I think that's the real advantage of So what do we get if we do that? We go to explosive scene, we take a sample, we look at it. What are we looking for? We're looking for um, characteristic peaks within our 
chromatogram, so our separate components, that might indicate that that is a particular explosive type. And there could be up to 60 different types, certainly for explosives. And drugs, there are thousands. Uh, and so modern chromatography now is able to separate these things on that scale. So if you know it's a particular sort of explosive, you might think, well, it's come out of that particular area of sale and development, so you're, you're getting towards the culprits all that faster. Yes, so the, there's two things, first of all. The, the, the great wonder about chromatography is it doesn't just isolate what you're looking for, it also separates it from everything else. And so you can use other things in the sample to help you get more intelligence. So, for example, if you have a TNT explosive, there might be some other impurities there, which might lead you to understand how it might be made, which allows you to get some more intelligence about where it came from, for example. So it tests water, it tests air as well, doesn't it? Air, yes. If you take a a city like London, we're all quite concerned about air quality at the moment. Um, Air is a gas. Um, It might be colourless to you and me, but it's a quite complex mixture of of different chemicals. And chromatography is often used in the field even to monitor and in real time separate the mixtures and relay the information back so we can understand air quality and air pollution in particular. Um, So the pollution figures that we get are the result of chromatology? They can be, yes. There are some other techniques, but chromatography is, is, is very strong in underpinning that, yeah. And massively in pharmaceuticals? In pharmaceuticals, yes. So chromatography is is used a lot to underpin drug discovery. Um, So by isolating and purifying substances and um, also to scale it up to manufacture, uh, it's really important to separate and refine and purify it so that you get your end product that's desirable for human consumption. Is it essential now to pharmaceuticals? You can't put one on the market without it, having gone through the tests uh, decided by chromatological examination. Uh, As I've said, chromatography is one tool, but yes, um, usually we do a lot of impurity analysis using chromatography to see, you know, rarely it's a case that a chemical reaction will go to completion without some impurities or some original reagents being there. So it's very important to make sure that we've made what we've made uh, and how much of it we've made. And so chromatography really underpins that. And most pharmaceutical laboratories have chrom- chromatography as a, as a standard technique. Thank you. Andrea, Andrea Seller again. Um, one of the earliest figures associated with this is the German industrial chemist, Friedlieb Runger. Is it Runger? That's right, Friedlieb Runger. Uh, what did he do? Well, Rogan was really quite quite interesting. He was quite a quite a maverick figure, and and something that he did uh, sometime around the 1830s was to actually dribble small quantities of of chemical reagents onto blotting paper, and what he saw was a spreading out of the colors of the of the chemicals themselves, and as they reacted, what they did and spread out, he got an incredible kind of pattern. With a, with a weird shape to it. And this struck him as, A, very, very beautiful, and secondly, very, very intriguing. And in a way... Why is he doing it as much, Richard? Just for, out of curiosity? Well, I think, I think one of the ideas was that if you actually carried out the reaction in paper, it was known that paper had these very, very narrow gaps between the strands. And in a sense, it was like having an incredibly small test tube. So you were, you were conducting things under kind of capillary conditions. And What does capillary conditions mean? Uh, under, under conditions where there are narrow gaps and therefore the liquid will be drawn through by, through its surface tension by, by capillary action. And so this resulted in these very strange, rather Rorschach-like blotches on paper 
And he was, A, intrigued by the colors. He was kind of amazed by, by the reactions, but also the fact that he got these patterns. Now, to put this into context, this was in the 1830s, and this is around or just after the time of Wöhler and Liebig's um, great experiments, which are trying to understand where the boundary between the organic, the chemistry of life, and the inorganic, the, the mineral chemistry, actually lay. And people were wondering about the life force, you know, where where does life emerge from? It was clear that chemistry lay at the heart of it. And Rungen became incredibly excited by the patterns that he saw, and he just couldn't explain where they were coming from. And he imagined that what the capillary action was, was revealing was a life force, a new force, a bit like electricity or magnetism, and he called it das Od. And needless to say... Uh, well, I'm not quite sure what it well, really means. I've, I've looked it up. I've looked it up in, the, in, in, in my German dictionary at home. It doesn't appear. I think it was an invented word. But the, 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 the key point there was really this idea that he was trying to get to the heart of what, what you know, life was. He thought he'd found a secret of life. But in fact, he was completely off base because he kind of not really understood the basis of what was going on. But Runge's experiments actually led on, first of all, to getting lots of schoolchildren to doing it. And the result was that he had privately published hundreds of copies of books containing these original things. They're absolutely beautiful. They're wonderful. But in a sense, they're kind of meaningless. I mean, it, you don't learn very much from it. The next major figure, in fact, the major figure, uh, April Stolkup, is the Russian, we can call him. He was Italian-Russian, wasn't he? Yes. Mikhail Tsvet, um, for whom I have a great sympathy. What was he doing? And First of all, what was he doing? And then I'd like to know why he thought he was doing it. Well, he was he, when he first started out, he actually did a lot of his education in Switzerland. This is late 19th century. Uh, early, yeah, late 19th century. And he was, he was working on plant pigments. He was really interested in carotenoids and chlorophylls and all that kind of thing. And it's, the part of it is really um, instructive because what he noticed when he was trying to extract different things out of these plants was that it depended a lot on the solvents that he was using, which is a lot what we were talking about with the mobile phase. And some of his earliest studies, um, he, he, he thought, a lot of people just said that it was because the solvents were doing something to the plant tissue. And he thought, no, there was more to it than that, that um, perhaps that the cellulose in the plants was a little bit stickier to these, um, these pigments he was trying to extract. And so he used a cellulose column and tried to get things, plant pigments to move down it during um, using different solvent systems. And it turned out that that correlated very well with the solvent extraction techniques he was using to get the pigments out. Why was he doing it? What drove him to do this? He just was interested in, yeah. in, in, in the pigments. And also, um, I think some of, the, um, some of it was driven by the fact that so many of the kinds of experiments trying to isolate things back in those days were very tedious and time-consuming and not very systematic. And so he was trying to make it much more systematic. Which he did. Yeah, which he did. And he gave his name to it, didn't he, really? Well, yeah, because... Maybe in both senses of the word. Yeah, well, because chromatography, people think of that as being color writing, but his name Svet actually means color in Russian as well. So, it, it you know, was he an egomaniac? Who knows, maybe. <laughs> it seems to me to be a man who didn't get his just desserts in his lifetime. No, he Partly didn't. because we enter into 
the, the, the bear trap, which is in all cultures and all times, is snobbery. Yeah, there was an element of that. There was also an element later on because of um, later on, you know, history a lot of times is revisionist. And at the height of the Cold War, there was a lot of things about giving um, him less than his due because he was Russian. But, you know, but also the idea that, that being a technician was of less value than being an abstract thinker in science, and these mere technicians shouldn't win Nobel Prizes, and they were doing, they were do, they were doing a, a lot, of, uh, in many cases, like Faraday, for instance, massively, of the essential work. It's extraordinary, this snobbery I provide. It's usually a sort of mask of ignorance, isn't it? Yeah, he, he, was at, he was nominated for a Nobel, but it was for his work on carotenoids and chlorophylls, not on his, not on his development of chromatography. I'll come to you in, in a minute, Andrea, but can I just uh, develop, thank you very much, can I develop with Leon the, the, the analysis of chlorophyll? Um, can you just describe to the listeners exactly what he did and why he chose chlorophyll and what he got out of it? Okay, well, chlorophyll, as, as April has said, it's a, it's a pigment. And so um, he, he did that as originally as a botanist. He was interested in, uh, in, in these pigments from a botanical point of view. Uh, and separating them is, is not, not very easy and trying to understand what's there. Um, so he, he started by investigating a number of different materials as the stationary phase, so things like um, calcium carbonate, alumina, various... I think he worked on about 100 different sorbents there thereabouts. Um, and so... Um, you know, he, he really did investigate the effect of these chlorophylls and carotenoids on uh, their interaction with the stationary phase. I think you probably would say more. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, you know, what, what he wanted to do was to, was to tease apart the machinery of photosynthesis. And, and by then it was recognized that photosynthesis was the basis of all of life on Earth. And, and he spotted something kind of amazing when he, when he ground up spinach leaves using petrol and he added calcium carbonate. And he added calcium carbonate because it's a base. And some of the components when he ground up the cell were acidic. He found that the carotenes, which are orange, actually stayed in the petrol while everything else seemed to stick to the calcium carbonate. And that made him wonder whether if he put the calcium carbonate in a glass pipe and then put the, the spinach extract at the top and then poured solvent in from the top, what would happen would be that first he could wash off the carotenoids and that would allow him to work with that. And then he could change the solvent and he could run off the next colored band and that turned out to be yellow and those were the xanthophylls. And suddenly he had a way to progressively separate out each one of the essentially antenna pigments, the, the light-collecting pigments, right, that plants use to do photosynthesis. And, and in doing so, he, he also separated out three different chlorophylls. And so there was chlorophyll A, B, and C. Now, his work was hugely contested, and there were German chemists who were absolutely convinced that, that what he was doing was getting artifacts. But Svet... What he really identified was something crucial, and that was the fact that some of these pigments stick. And he called this adsorption. And adsorption spelt with a D. Adsorption, yes. Adsorption. And that means a surface effect. It's a little bit like, in, like, like a post-it note which sticks to the surface rather than something that goes into a sponge. It's a, it's a surface effect. And that it was adsorption that was the basis of it. Now, because he was from a minor university, first in Kazan on the Volga and then in Warsaw, he was, as you say, poo-pooed by the posh German chemists. And his work really wasn't recognized for a good 25, 30 years before people began to come back to it and realize its generality. 
Can we come back to you, Leon, for a moment to, to end his sto- to conclude his story? So he worked with that. Did he develop? Did he go and to develop other uh, more complex systems or work with other substances after working with chlorophyll? In I think that way? most of his stuff was with with chlorophyll. But he did he did actually use uh, the same stationary phase material to add to samples of um, of extracted leaves, for example. To, to take out each specific component in turn, which actually forms the basis of modern another modern extraction technique called solid phase microextraction and also solid phase extraction, a different topic. But actually his thought process in doing that actually led to the forerunner to a lot of the extraction and separation techniques we use today based on adsorption. To take up something that, that uh, Andrew said just then, <coughs> not being, this work not being accepted for say, 25 years, did he just sort of lie in a drawer somewhere, nobody took any notice and life did not go on without it? For the 25 or 30 years between 1906 and 1941 we had obviously a major event as well and we had World War and I think Svet was particularly impacted by that because he had to flee and so um, a lot of his his work was interrupted. Um, yeah but other people's work was interrupted, I mean Einstein's work was interrupted but they still continued with that so what, why didn't they take it up? I mean, as soon as the First World War stopped, uh, people from this country went to, to, to corroborate what Einstein had done and so on. I'm just interested in why this essential work was not taken up for so long. I mean, they can't all have been uh, just merely snobs or God knows there's enough of them. But still, um, so what was going on? Well, I think this is, this is a classic example in a sense of conservatism in science is, is the fact that, you know, when you have a particular way of thinking, a particular paradigm, then that is often really quite robust and it will stay in place for a long time. And the, you know, although um, Svet had argued and had really out-argued the great German chemist Wilstetter, Wilstetter had such a high position that even though Svet had managed to reject some of Wilstetter's arguments. Nevertheless, that kind of stayed in place. And you have to remember that he was at very minor universities. He was a you know one-man band. He didn't have lots of students. And so, you know, it's one of those things that before the thinking change changes, sometimes you need a whole generation to go by. I, I think one more thing to contribute to that, you mentioned Einstein, but Einstein was a theoretician. And it's easier to do that kind of stuff than it is to do the experimental chemistry that's ne- necessary for establishing something like this technique. But didn't they go to Patagonia as not theoreticians, as practical scientists, Eddington and so on, to prove that there the, is this theory? You might it? have me there, I'm sorry. I'm sorry but <laughs> never mind. Look, can I ask you, uh, this, so it gets a bump, this, in the uh, in the 1940s. I'm going to put this question uh, to you, April, because you've been out the conversation for a moment or two. In this country, in Mill Hill, just north of where we're sitting now, the Richard Sinjan Archer Martin rather eccentrically moved this on. How did they do it? They basically um, decided to, they, they were using a technique called uh, countercurrent chromatography, which was a particularly cumbersome technique to isolate some materials that they were working with. Um, and the idea here is that they had two solvents, immiscible solvents, that were moving past each other in some tubing, and they decided, well, we doesn't, both of those uh, phases don't have to move. One can actually be stationary. And so they coated a, um, um, a, a material, and I can't remember what it is now, but they put a Water, a slight layer of water on it, okay, and one like of a film of water, like a film of yeah. water, and it's interesting because that's sort of come back now with a new flavor of chromatography in the last few years called um, hillock 
Um, so it c- goes around and comes around again. But they did this and they demonstrated that. They also later on, AJ AGP- Martin, well, okay, so they called this partition chromatography, which is different than the adsorption that Svet was doing. And then later on, Martin also um, developed gas chromatography. Uh, and it's it's one of the reasons why the UK, these two people here from the UK were some of the earliest inventors. They completely revolutionized uh, chromatography and brought it into the modern era. And then after that, development was relatively rapid, wasn't it? It was fits and starts because it was easier to develop the instrumentation for gas chromatography and to develop stable stable stationary phases for gas chromatography. It was easier to develop the theoretical models. Liquid chromatography was there first, but it didn't really start making advances until probably the mid-60s because of the lack of equipment, lack of instrumentation. In the the mid-60s, Leon Barron... We got into liquid chromatography. Is there a sniff in the air then that these men, uh, sometimes extraordinarily eccentric men, were, who had been doing it for the curiosity of doing it, were onto something that was going to enter into the world, uh, the practical and the commercial and the profit-making world? Is that is that in the air? Yes, but it's also a more yeah, a practicality was certainly the driver for liquid chromatography. Yeah. I think gas chromatography, where the mobile phase is a gas and the stationary phase is mainly a liquid, really relies on the mixture to be volatile and in the gas phase. And not everything is stable at high temperatures. Um, so for liquids and for things that are not very uh, thermally um, amenable to changing into the gas phase, liquid chromatography was far more applicable. It was more flexible. It meant that mixtures of, of liquids could be Can separated better. Can you just explain better. to the listeners what you mean by liquid chromatography? So liquid chromatography is, is very similar to what we described earlier on, where we've got a liquid mobile phase, and usually it's a solid stationary phase. Um, and in the mid-60s, we moved from the, from the kind of gravity-fed mobile phase to a more uh, a, a technological advance in pumping the mobile phase through a packed column. And so that advance, coupled with uh, the stationary phase advance with the particle technology to make that material, uh, led to uh, high-performance liquid chromatography. And this is where it started to be used really in its own right as a much more commercial piece of instrumentation. How was it taken up first of all? What was the first, the first crossover, as the, it were? The first, the first use of um, high-performance liquid chromatography was in, in what we call now normal phase chromatography, which is a, a tube packed with silica. Uh, the mobile phase is generally non-polar, so something like hexane, for example, and it separated components based on their increasing um, non-polarity. Right? Non-polarity. I always get it mixed up. Um, I'm so, glad you're not looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, po- polar polar compounds tend to retain more. Sorry, it's the other way around. Polar compounds tend to retain more than non-polar ones. And that led on then to the development of the opposite. Could we reverse that, that polarity and, and do it the other way around? And it was actually A.J.P. Martin who... Mm. who, who who figured that out or who was the first one to do reverse phase chromatography. Mm. Andrea, we've been concentrating on this, uh, Andrea. Other than chromatography, looking back, were there other uh, efficient ways of separating (coughs) separating substances? Yes. I mean, uh, chromatography is kind of a a late bloomer in a way, but there were all kinds of classical methods, let's say, for, for separating things. The most important of these was crystallization, the idea that you might dissolve something up 
in a hot solvent and then you let it cool down very slowly and out come crystals. And you might be able to get pure crystals that way. Now that works fine if you have a large amount of material and if the differences in the solubilities are, are quite big. But it starts getting quite difficult if, for example, you're dealing with the pigments of a plant, which just don't work very well that way. The other possibility is to use two solvents. And this is, in a way, related to this idea of liquid uh, chromatography. We know that petrol and water don't mix. So what you get are two layers. And so if, for example, you were to take the, a, a plant leaf, grind it up, and you mix it with the petrol, the solution will turn green. But if you now add water, you'll also get some color, a different color, in the water part. In other words, you're able to put kind of partition, let's say, have a ratio of the pigment across the two phases in the water and in the hexane. Again, this is a process which turns out to be relatively inefficient. And the really fantastic thing about chromatography was the chromatography, particularly the liquid chromatography, essentially allowed you to do that partitioning between the oil and the, 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 the petrol and the water many, many times, over and over again, thousands of times as you go through this long pipe, which is where the chromatography takes place. Yeah. So in a sense, chromatography is in part a development of that very classical technique of separating a kind of petrol phase from a water phase. It began very... I'm reading at the moment about the 7th century and a man who's got 90 colours, 90 different colours to illuminate a manuscript out of six plants and a few minerals. So he's been doing... He's been separating, hasn't he, somewhere or another? They've had... He's had ways of doing... It just linked up with this programme, curiously. Well, unquestionably. And, and one of the things that the, the science writer Philip Ball has argued for a very long time is that actually the development of art and the development of chemistry really go very much hand in hand. And so the ability to, first of all, identify pigments, but also manipulate the colors, transform them, and separate them is really part and parcel, art and science going hand in hand. Very good. April, um, chromatology is now enormous. We're told, we were, the producer of this program, Simon, was authoritatively informed that the biggest conferences in the world are now chromatological conferences. How come? Uh, because it's such a useful technique. It's used all over. We mentioned before about pharmaceuticals, for instance. I will tell you that I make the best pancakes in the world, okay, um, but... My son, one of my son's best friends won't eat my pancakes anymore because he got a mouthful of baking soda. And in the pharmaceutical industries, they use a lot of the same kinds of things that they use in bakeries to mix all the powders and all the active pharmaceutical ingredients together. Okay, and I'm you lost got with the pancakes. I'm awfully sorry. I don't know whether... They, did you make a mistake with baking the pancakes? No, or? they didn't get mixed. Oh, I see. It didn't right. get mixed adequately. And when you put all these powders into mixers that they use in the pharmaceutical industry, sure. it's quite possible that the active pharmaceutical ingredient... Suppose you're making a lot of, of a 1,000 tablets and all of the API ends up in a handful of those tablets. You can't release those to the market. The way you tell that is you do chromatography on a subset of those tablets to make sure that it's uniformly distributed. Did That's you do chromatography in your pancakes? No, I don't. I don't. But <laughs> Sorry, it's trivial, trivial. Please forgive me. 
that's okay. We've been talking really hardcore science now for a while. It's a it's time to lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> okay, we're going to go back to supercritical fluids, Leon Barron, just to put, put me in my place. Uh, what are they, Leon, and why are they important? Okay, supercritical fluids kind of came along in the, in the 60s uh, as, a, as an alternative uh, use for a mobile phase in, in comparison to liquids and gases. And so a supercritical fluid is essentially has the properties of both a liquid and a gas uh, by heating it and also by applying uh, high pressure. So the advantage of that is that you get the efficiency of mass transfer or separation uh, combined with it being very flexible to uh, solubilize a sample and all of its components which a gas can't do on its own so it sort of offers a middle ground between uh, gas chromatography and liquid chromatography um, its its value really is that it can be used with a lot of different stationary phases and I think stationary phase materials for liquid chromatography tend to be a lot more diverse than gas chromatography so being able to apply that same um, kind of theory in gas chromatography to a lot of different materials really allows us to do an awful lot more. What sort of things more that we would recognise? So, um, for example, uh, there's a type of molecule called a, a chiral molecule that's particularly used for that type of uh, separation, which is, I suppose, a simple way to describe a chiral molecule is if you look at your two hands, they're opposite mirror images of each other. It's the very same thing with molecules. They don't superimpose no matter what way you turn them. Okay, they're different and they're so chemically similar that GC and LC sometimes really struggle to separate the two from each other. And what's important is that one form of the other, for example, could be uh, more toxic than the other. And so the separation becomes very, very difficult. And supercritical fluid chromatography is a really useful way to really, really combine the best of both worlds. Um, I suppose to just draw on what April said earlier on, chromatography is a, a really nice example of a science that const constantly reinvents itself. And SFC is a, is a really good example of that in the sense that it was, it was invented in the 60s, there were some problems with the technology, and recently in the last five or ten years it started to re-emerge again now that the technology is caught up. It's the very same with liquid chromatography. It went away for a while, gas chromatography came in, and then in the 60s was really nailed down. And, and it's also, well, just one, one thing more, is that it's used on a preparative scale, and it becomes a green technology because then your carrier is a gas that, can, that you don't have to dispose of. It just can go out into the air. You know, it's, it's a constituent of air anyway. Andrea, Andrea Seller, can you, does ion exchange chromatography, is that, is that taking you further along the line? Are you, are you more precise, able to do more things? Well, ion exchange chromatography is, is a, a marvelous technique which allows you essentially to separate molecules according to their charge. And it involves essentially making a, a resin which is studded with charges. And you can choose whether to put positive charges or negative charges. And it was invented here in Britain in the, in the 1930s by um, a, a, a couple of chemists um, in, in Teddington, just up the road from, from here. And they made a resin which essentially allows you to um, pour, for example, tap water in at the top and essentially separate out all of the ions that are present in the water. So, for example, you know, in London, we know there's a lot of lime scale. If you want to find out how much magnesium, how much calcium, and, of course, sodium, potassium, all the other ions, then you can use this ion exchange chromatography to essentially separate them out. But there's more to it than that. 
In fact, something very similar to on-exchange chromatography is present in all of our dishwashers. And of course, in you know, if, if you have a water softener at home, the same kind of resin is in there because what it's able to do is to exploit this stickiness, the fact that the resin is charged, that the ions have the opposite charge, and so they can stick. And that allows you to essentially eliminate lime scale, A, from your dishwasher, and B, from your tap water. Uh, April, what happens when you build these uh, these things, these cr- <coughs> chromatography tests, to other equipment, such as mass spectrometers? What's happening there? Um, actually, that's a that's a makes it an incredibly powerful tool. And in Leon's work with um, with forensics, they use it an awful lot. They, they it's been a tremendously powerful tool. He can probably speak to that better than I can about the hyphenation of of, of liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry or gas chromatography. You're on, Leon. Yeah, so um, we can separate things with the chromatography, uh, but also the mass spectrometry gives us structural information. So briefly, we can tell straight away what something is by its chem- its chemical structure in the mass spectrometer. That's that's the advantage of it. There's breaking news. Uh, Andrew is waving his piece of paper across there. He's determined, yes, and you've got a bloodstain. No, it isn't. It's a colour. <laughs> there you are. You've got what have you got? So what red, we've done is we've taken the, uh, red the, and the brown pigment and yeah. we've really separated it out into a beautiful sort of turquoise blue, some red and some orange. And so now what does that tell you? You've got that. Okay, so what? So what it's telling us is that of course the the brown pigment is not a unitary substance that it's actually a complex mixture, which has been optimized by the marker manufacturer. But in very much the same way in which you might use this for forensic purposes, then what you're able to do is to separate it out into its components. And these hyphenated techniques that we've just been talking about, what they're doing is they're giving you a detector at the end. And it's the detection. What comes off our column? What comes off the separation? What is it? And that's what those tools allow you to do. Briefly. Briefly. I visited an elementary school classroom where the class mouse had been kidnapped. And the um, kidnapper had left a ransom note. And everybody's favorite villain came in, the vice principal. He had a pen. They analyzed the pen and were able to establish that it was the vice principal who had kidnapped the mouse. Has it in any way peaked, this? Or is there, oh, I've got to go. Sorry. Time's up. Has it peaked quickly? Yes or no, this? No, 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 not at all. Well, you've got a certain interest. In <laughs> and thank you very much. It was difficult. You made it uh, comprehensible to one non-chemist at least. Thank you very much, Andrew Seller, April Stolkup, and Leon Barron. Next week we'll be talking about the poems of Rumi, the 13th century Persian scholar and mystic. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. It usually begins by me saying, what did I crucially and culpably miss out? I I can start with that one. Um, I think it's important to remember that chromatography is not the only way to separate things in in much the same way. Um, And a good example of that is uh, electrophoresis. And electrophoresis doesn't have a stationary phase we have uh, an applied potential across a, a tube and it separates things on their size and their charge. And why that's important is that its primary use, certainly in forensic sciences, in DNA profiling. Ah. And so it's the preferred technique for DNA profiling because it's such a large molecule, it's quite complex, it's much better at doing that. You can do it by chromatography, but the preferred technique is, is electrophoresis. So it's a, it's a, a similar concept, but a different uh, there's different physics to it. 
I go along with that. And then also it could be argued that mass spectrometry is also a, a separation technique because you are chase, you are separating things based on the, the ratio of their mass to charge, very similar to what you're doing in electrophoresis, mm -hmm. except you're doing it in a, in a vacuum. I'll just explain, if I may, for a moment or two, what I elliptically said in the program. about I'm doing something about the 7th... Well, I'm, I'm, anyway, I'm reading about the 7th century mm -hmm. and about the illuminated manuscripts. And this man called Eadfris, who was the bishop of Lindisfarne for about 20 years, let's leave it at that, in that century. And he alone did the Lindisfarne Gospels. It, mm -hmm. They're usually teams working on it. It's extraordinary. Oh, you must have seen them there. It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there are over 90 different colours and they're all vibrant, dynamic colours. And he had six plants and a few minerals to get those colours. And he just seemed to me to fit in with this discussion. Yes, it did. I it couldn't make perfect. it fit in properly, but it did fit in. So what do you say to that? I think I, I think that was a great example because, in, in, in fact, a lot of what drove the chromatography development was, an in, was industrial applications. The gas chromatography, a lot of that development was driven by the petroleum industries as they were trying to characterize the different petroleum that they were getting out of the ground. Um, and so, yeah, there's there, and 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 when you were talking about the ion exchange and that being used in water softeners, a lot of the techniques that we use in chromatography are also the basis for cleaning up drinking water. Mm. Use the same kinds of resins to pull things out. So, yeah, I, the, the, the industry and development of 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 instrumentation and techniques go very much hand in hand. They're the ones with the deep pockets and also with the interesting problems that need to be solved. Are they directing the way research goes now? Are, you, are people like you going to them and saying, "Look, I've I've had a terrific idea. I've been fiddling around with it well, for think, five years." I think there's 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 a really important point that comes out of out of this, and that is that to me, chromatography is one of those great examples of the importance of allowing the curious scientist to go off and have a play. I'm so and glad you said that, yes. You know, the, 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 the interesting thing is that, you know, here is a man who is asking a very profound question of no industrial relevance. You know, when Svet actually starts taking apart plant cells and he finds a way to separate them out and his work is contested and it lies fallow for about 30 years. I mean, in the current environment, there is absolutely no way that someone like that would get ahead. Now, it's true that he didn't get very far ahead. He didn't become famous and so on. But, you know, he sort of had his career. But today, I think... You know, there's a very good chance he wouldn't have got tenure, that he would have been sort of hived off quite quickly because he wasn't publishing in the high-profile journals. That, And yet out of this has come not simply an industry that is worth a huge amount to us, but actually it, which underpins all of the quality control that runs our lives. I mean, whether it be in pharmaceuticals, whether it be in our foods, if we want to know if food is counterfeit or contaminated, right, you know, chromatography really kind of rules our lives in all kinds of ways. And so the idea that we should always turn to the industrialists and, and, and solve their problems, they're looking at problems on a three-year timescale, especially the way shareholders want to do. This idea that you might explore weird yeah. things on long timescales doesn't exist. Well, that's a great loss. Archer's the same, isn't it? I mean, Mad Archer up in Mill Hill with his hosepipes and all the rest of it. I mean, he, he published scarcely any papers. Nowadays, he'd have been kicked out. Hmm. He was fired from his... Well, he was, he was uh, asked to leave the University of Houston because he wasn't publishing enough. He only published 90 papers in his career. It was the ninth one for which he got the Nobel. 
We should all be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Here's Simon coming in with the great BBC offer. Tea, coffee, or a glass of water with a piece of paper in it. <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd love a cup of tea. With there that. are many more science and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.